بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير سبحانك لا علمنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العزيز الحكيم سبحانك لا فهمنا إلا ما فهمتنا إنك أنت الجواد الكريم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Alhamdulillah. So this is session three, but it's in reality session two in covering the meanings of the divine names. Because last week we spoke about Al-Ismul A'zam, the supreme name, the divine name, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we spoke about a couple of the issues regarding the name and whether or not the divine name Allah Lafu Jalala is derived from a root or whether it is a non-derived noun. And some of that conversation spills over a little bit into this session, but not too much. Today inshaAllah we're going to be looking at the next two names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from his Al-Asma'ul Husna. And these are the two names, Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. We know that these two names are in the Basmala, the formula of Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, which is before every single chapter of the Qur'an except for one, which is what chapter? Surah Tawbah. And there's a lengthy difference of opinion and debate going back and forth among scholars about whether the Basmala in Surah Al-Fatiha is an ayah or not. We're not getting into any of that stuff. We're just looking at the meanings of these two names. And I'm reminded of our sister a couple of weeks ago who asked about the meaning of Ar-Rahman and how it might be translated into English as the most compassionate, the idea of, of a superlative, right? And we'll be addressing that as well tonight, inshallah ta'ala. So if I were to ask you, before I even open the slides, how would we translate the name Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim when together? How would we translate them? So you say you have the Basmala, Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. How do you translate that? In the name of Allah, most compassionate, all merciful, all merciful. What, what other translations could we use? Or have you heard? Beneficent, beneficent, uh, merciful, compassionate, gracious. I haven't heard forgiving. Uh, so there's, there's various ways it's been translated. And when you look at the various translations of the Quran in English, you, you find all of these. So I hope that by tonight we'll understand uh, possible translations, some that are good and some that are better and some that are best. So starting with the two names, Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, of course we begin with Ar-Rahman. 
because Ar-Rahman always precedes Ar-Rahim in the Basmala. And <coughs> there is a position among a minority of scholars that the name Ar-Rahman is non-derived. It's not mushtaq. Similar to the divine name Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So some scholars were of the opinion that just as the name Allah is not derived from a three-letter root, uh, it's not derived, likewise the name Ar-Rahman is not derived. Well, we'll get to that. Well, why did they have that view? Well, their view was based on an understanding of the verse that you see here. وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ مُسْجُدُوا لِلرَّحْمَانِ قَالُوا وَمَا الرَّحْمَانِ أَنَسْجُدُوا لِمَا تَأْمُرُنَا When it is said to them, prostrate to Ar-Rahman, they, meaning the Jahili Arabs, the idol worshippers among them, they ask, what? Is a Rahman. What is a Rahman? Notice here that in the verse they are Allah is mentioning them asking the question, Ma, what is a Rahman? They're not asking who is a Rahman. They're asking what is a Rahman? Will we prostrate to whatever you order us to? So of that minority group of scholars who said that Ar Rahman is not derived, this verse was their primary proof. They said, if it was derived, then the Arabs would have known, well, obviously it's coming from Rahima, and they wouldn't say what, they would say who. But because they said what, it indicates that they didn't even recognize this as a, as a name at all, derived or otherwise. It's not a strong position, by the way. It's a very, it's a minority view, but it's there. The majority view is that, yes indeed, the name Ar-Rahman as well as the name Ar-Rahim is mushtaq, it's derived. Derived from what? What three-letter root? ra ha in mim Rahima, both the name Ar-Rahman and the name Ar-Rahim are derived from ra ha mim Rahima. That's the verb form. And the majority view is that it is derived and derived from those three letters. Now, the Prophet ﷺ says in the Hadith Qudsi that Allah says, I am Ar-Rahman, I created the womb, the Rahim, conferred upon it a name from me. And this is a Hadith related by At-Tirmidhi. So that hadith is a proof that it's actually derived. Because Allah says in the hadith Qudsi that I am Ar-Rahman and I created the womb, the Rahim, conferred upon it a name from me. Which means there's this notion of derivation being derived. So the idol worshippers who denied Ar-Rahman, who said in what is Ar-Rahman, they denied it as an attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when they said, what is Ar-Rahman? They're not saying, who is Ar-Rahman? It's like they're denying that that name, which is, it's an attribute. It's describing a quality of God. It's like they're denying that as a quality of God. 
And that's why they say, Rahman. It's just outright denial that God is described as Ar-Rahman. So the view of the majority is that yes, it does come from Rahimah. Both Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. So we're looking at Rahman right now. And we'll look at Rahim afterwards. Now, with both of them, they're coming from the word Rahmah, mercy. And we have to define what mercy is to understand the meaning of Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. And the ulama mention that when the word Rahmah is used among creation and how we feel it and express it, it is described as riqqah, a kind of delicateness and a kind of uh, affection towards someone or something, a kind of uh, feeling of warmness and kindness, of delicateness and softness. And that's why you will call someone rahim affectionate. Or you could translate it as affectionate for a person. But that is actually an emotional response. So when you describe a human being with rahmah, you're describing an emotional quality of delicateness, of softness, of affection. But emotions like this, what we will call uh, infi'alat, reactions to the behavior of others, emotional qualities like that are not actually becoming or befitting the divine, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you can't say that the rahmah of Allah is an emotion of delicateness and softness, right? That would be the meaning of rahmah applied to human beings. So what does this mean? The ulama say that the intended meaning of ar-Rahman and ar-Rahim as divine names for Allah ta'ala is looking at the natija, the outcome of that quality of rahmah. What is the outcome of Allah's rahmah? It is fadl wa imtinan, it is inaya, it is karam, it is grace, it is solicitude and divine care, it is largesse and fadl. All of these qualities of beneficence, as you mentioned, beneficent as a possible translation, those are the outcomes of mercy. So typically when the scholars talk about the rahmah of Allah, they say that the rahmah of Allah is Allah's irada, His will to bestow His mercy, His grace, His fadl, His largesse, His divine care and solicitude towards a particular person, right? And so this means that the attribute ar-Rahman or the rahmah of Allah is linked with the divine will. Allah wills to extend His kindness, His generosity, His grace, His fadl, all of these things that are included in that meaning of uh, rahmah. Now, Shaykh Ahmad Zarruq, who will be quoting quite a lot in this series because he has a really good commentary on the 99 names, he says that the names of Allah are only understood by considering the outcomes of how they manifest. These outcomes are actions, af'al, they're actions of God. The act of God in bestowing grace, that's his rahmah. 
the rahmah manifests through the Allah doing something, bestowing, giving, helping, relieving, and so on. So we don't interpret rahmah as a reaction or an emotion. Why not? Because that is a kind of internal change. We don't describe Allah with the qualities of change like that. When, let's say you come across someone, you just encounter them, and they're suffering greatly, and they tell you their story, and what happens as they tell you the story, you start to feel bad for them. And you have the ability to help them somehow, but you feel this softness, this delicateness, you feel bad for them, and so you have mercy on them. That is a reaction, an emotional reaction to learning something about the person you didn't know before. So that kind of emotional reaction that indicates a prior ignorance, that is only for human beings. So that kind of rahmah is the human rahmah, the created rahmah. The rahmah of Allah is the divine action. It's not associated with uh, reactions and emotions and these things. So I want us to understand that because Allah Ta'ala is not discovering something uh, happening to a person that he then feels bad about and then shows that person compassion. Allah already knows what they're going through. But when Allah wills to bestow upon that person his grace and his blessings and ease and divine care, that will to bestow that goodness on the person, that is called rahmah. So ar-Rahman comes from rahmah and that is the general meaning of rahmah. Uh, with respect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now the question that comes up <coughs> is, okay, Rahman and Ar-Rahim both come from Rahima, from Rahma. So what exactly is the difference between the two names? If you translate Ar-Rahman, you can find the compassionate and the merciful. If you look at the name Ar-Rahman by itself, you could say the compassionate, you could say the merciful. If you look at the name Ar-Rahim by itself, guess what? You can translate it as the compassionate, the merciful. So oftentimes what happens is, if you have two words that are very similar in meaning, they're, they're translated almost exactly the same when they're by themselves. But when you put them together, you can't just say the compassionate and the compassionate or the merciful and the merciful. There has to be a difference. So what exactly is the difference? There is a very small minority of ulama who said, actually there's no difference. But that is largely rejected because the difference in the, the Arabic word, the way the word is written and expressed, indicates a difference in meaning, right? The more you add letters to a word, the more meaning you're adding to it. So let's look at the meanings of Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim together to see how they're different. So first of all, uh, in the Arabic language, you have certain words that fit a template. They fit a scale. We call it a wazn in, in the science of sarf. And that wazn here for Rahman is Fa'lan. The fa is the first letter of the root. The ayn represents the middle letter of the root. And the lam represents the 
the last letter of the three-letter root. The extra letters are added to the scale because those are extra letters. So Rahima, Ra is the first letter, Ha is the second, Mim is the third. Ra would be in the position of what letter here? Fa. The Ha would be in the position of the Ain, the second letter. And the Lam or the, the, the Mim would be in the position of the Lam. So the Elif and Nun are extra. Now, in the Arabic language, what you find is uh, there are lots of words that come from three-letter roots, and a, you have a noun that comes from them with the extra elif and nun at the end. So you have words like ghadban. What does that mean? Angry. So ghadban. You have na'san. You know, they're sleepy. You have atshan. What does that mean? They're thirsty. You have jaw'an. They're hungry. Right? You have za'lan. I didn't put that in the slide. What is za'lan? Sad. Upset. Annoyed. Right? Now, what do those words all have in common? Whether it's angry, sleepy, thirsty, or hungry, they all have one thing in common. And that is the words on that pattern indicate uh, an encompassment in action. So a certain action that is filling or encompassing, right? Now usually these words are describing being filled with something internally. So when you're thirsty, it's intense and it's filling you. You, you just feel thirsty inside. When you're tired, it's, it engulfs you. You just feel tired. When you're angry, <laughs> you're angry. It fills you. So the name Ar-Rahman is on the same pattern from Fa'alan. So in all of these words, the implication is that the person is filled with that quality, right? Now when we say filled, we don't mean filled in a physical sense. When you're thirsty, you're not filled with anything. But it's encompassing you. When you're angry, you're not filled with anything, literally, like a material substance, but it's encompassing you. So this would mean that it is Rahma that is encompassing and filling and comprehensive, right? That means that you could translate Ar-Rahman as the infinitely good. You could translate it as the absolutely merciful and encompassing. You could translate it as the one of comprehensive compassion. These are all ways you could translate it. They're all accurate because each of these translations reflect that meaning of fa'lan, that encompassment indicated in the structure of the word. So that is what we would say regarding at least the linguistic aspect of the name Ar-Rahman. But that still doesn't answer how it's different from Rahim and vice versa. When we come to Ar-Rahim, it's a lot easier. Uh, in Arabic, Ar-Rahim is Ra, Ha, Mim as a root, but on the pattern of Fa'il, Fa'il, Rahim, Fa'il, it, it matches that pattern. And that pattern is Sifa Mubalagha. It is 
a noun that carries the meaning of intensity in an action. Intensity in an action. Right? So this would mean that you could possibly translate Ar-Rahim as the intensely merciful or the intensely compassionate or the specifically merciful. We'll, we'll get to that soon, inshallah. So, uh, I, you know, I've been translating for a long time and I still don't always, I don't settle on a single translation of the Basmalah. It all depends on, I don't know, the mood. Right, there's multiple ways you could render it. But usually, I will translate Ar-Rahman as the uh, all-compassionate or the absolutely merciful, something like that. And Ar-Rahim as the compassionate or the merciful. <laughs> I didn't really answer the question, did I? Because um, it varies. We'll look at what the differences are in the next couple of slides. Now, just going now to the commentaries, <coughs> we have the statement of the great Imam, Sheikh Ahmed Zarruq, rahimahullah. Uh, he mentions in his commentary on the 99 names that the name Ar-Rahman is on the wazn, the morphological pattern of Fa'lan from the word Rahma. And we know that, we just covered that, which he says is the manifestation of his divine command in creation, so that's irada, right? The will of Allah, that appears with a form of gentleness and beneficence. The reason why this name has been paired with the majestic name of Allah in his statement, say invoke Allah or invoke Ar-Rahman, is because it, Ar-Rahman, like the majestic name Allah, is exclusively His. So you can say Rahim for a person. Fulan Rahim. You can't say to a person about a person, He is Rahman. Not even with dropping the Adif and Lam. You wouldn't say anyone is Ar-Rahman. That's the divine name. But likewise, you wouldn't say to a person that He is Rahman. That name is exclusively for Allah Ta'ala. You can use Rahim as a name for a person without the Adif and Lam, but not Rahman. So he says it's exclusively his, as it indicates a specific meaning of mercy that is exclusive to him, namely the bringing of creation into existence, Ijad. And that can only be taken literally with respect to him and none else. So what he's doing here is he's actually showing you the difference. We haven't quite gotten there yet. But he's, he's hinting now at the difference between the name Ar-Rahman and the name Ar-Rahim. Notice how he links this name to a meaning that is exclusively for Allah Ta'ala, which is bringing things into existence. And <coughs> here's where he gives you the difference. He says, as for Rahim, it's on the wazn of Fa'il, on that pattern of Fa'il, Rahim, from the word Rahma. It is said to be more intense in meaning than the name Ar-Rahman because it implies 
sustenance, imdad, which comes after existence. So you have existence and then you have the sustenance after it. That is the key for understanding the difference between the Rahman and Ar-Rahim. So let's explain that. Now, what Shaykh Ahmad Zarruq is saying, and I'll summarize it for you in one sentence. He is saying that the Rahmah of Ar-Rahman is the Rahmah of being given existence itself. And the Rahmah of Ar-Rahim is the Rahmah of Imdad, of sustenance after you've been given existence. That's the difference. Let's see what he says. He says that the preferred explanation of Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim is that Ar-Rahman is the one who bestows the grace of existence. Ni'matul ijad, the grace of existence. And Ar-Rahim is the one who bestows the grace of sustenance. Ni'matul imdad. It's also said, and we'll unpack that soon. He says, it's also said that Ar-Rahman is the name of the universally merciful. Remember we said encompassment? So the universally merciful, whose mercy encompasses all of existence. And Ar-Rahim, it is said to mean the specifically merciful, who confers special mercy upon the believers. So that's another difference. The ulama would say, that Ar-Rahman is the name of Allah who describes himself with this quality of Rahmah and the Rahmah in this case is universal. Everyone receives the Rahmah of Allah from Ar-Rahman including disbelievers, including those who reject him, including the worst of the worst. But the Rahmah within the name Ar-Rahim that is speaking about a special rahmah that is only for the believers. If you take that interpretation, you can translate Ar-Rahman as the universally merciful and Ar-Rahim as the specifically merciful. So there's the absolute mercy that includes everyone and everything in existence. And then there's the specific rahmah that's only for the mu'minun, for the believers. So the latter is linked to the name Ar-Rahim and the former is linked to the name Ar-Rahman. Notice that he mentions this, uh, he says in the words of Allah Ta'ala <coughs> that he is Rahim towards the believers. He is Rahim towards the believers. To the believers he says he is Ar-Rahim. He does not say he is Rahim towards anyone else besides the believers in him. He says the name Rahim is exclusively for the believers and that is because the true sustenance is the spiritual sustenance and that is reserved for them. Remember we said the Rahmah of Ijad, of existence, being given existence, and then the Rahmah of Imdad, sustenance. He says, well, the greatest sustenance is the spiritual sustenance that endures forever. So that is why the name Rahim is reserved for the believers. He says, as for physical sustenance, everyone has a share of that. Believer and disbeliever. Everyone has a share of some of the divine sustenance, the imdad, of whatever he gives them, of the material. 
So that is not the sustenance that, he's, that we're speaking of. We're speaking of the imdad, the sustenance of the soul, right? So going back to this, uh, notice that <coughs> Shaykh Ahmad Zarruq is saying that when we look at the name Ar-Rahman, we say that this is the name of Allah who bestows the rahma of ijad, of existence. Who receives existence? Who is Everything that exists has been given existence by Allah Ta'ala, the good and the bad. Fir'aun, you know, the worst of humanity, Abu Jahl, they even received this because Allah created them. So in this sense, it's a very interesting perspective to think of. Everything that exists, that is created, is preceded by non-existence. We didn't always exist. And Allah willed to create us. So it's as if he's saying, it is from the rahmah of Allah that he gave people existence. Because in that existence he gave them, they were able to witness his creation and know something of him. Just that recognition. Even if a person buries it and denies it, deep down they know it's true. So some recognize it and acknowledge it. Some know it deep down, but they choose to reject it and deny it. But it's as if rahma, the rahma of existence is a blessing just to exist because Allah gives existence as a kind of rahma. Just in witnessing the creation of Allah, you're witnessing the power of Allah, you're given some kind of cognition, some awareness that you obviously couldn't have or wouldn't have if you didn't exist because there wouldn't be a you to observe that in the first place. So that is one way. But the higher form is the rahma of imdad, the rahma of sustenance, which comes after ijad, after existence. And that sustenance is not the material sustenance of food and drink, it is the sustenance of the soul, because that's what endures. So uh, as a Muslim reading Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, we are reminded that Allah gave us existence, and that's a form of rahmah. And He also gave us the sustenance of the soul by recognizing Him, by testifying to His existence and His oneness and His favors. And when those two things are combined, you're experiencing rahmah in, in, in a very beautiful way. And if a person doesn't recognize that, they still have the rahmah of existence itself because they didn't exist before and now they exist. So that's how we would say ar-Rahman and ar-Rahim are uh, similar and different to each other in meaning. Or you could say, as we mentioned earlier, ar-Rahman is the universally compassionate. And this compassion applies in many different ways, and everyone receives a share of that. The best of the best and the worst of the worst. And Ar-Rahim is the specifically merciful, whose rahmah is only for the believers. So the universally compassionate, the, uni the specifically compassionate, or the universally merciful, or the specifically merciful. So there's what we say, umum and khusus. Now, 
as we've did, uh, we mentioned in the introduction, some of the ulama, <coughs> they, after they explain these names, they look at how a person can connect to the name devotionally, what we call ta'alluq, and then they look at how you can cultivate your character with the meaning of that name, takhalluq, from akhlaq. And then they look at how one may have a deeper realization and experience of the name, what they call tahakkuq. So with regards to connecting devotionally to the name Ar-Rahman with ta'alluq, they say that you should connect with this name through seeking a downpour of mercy from Allah Ta'ala and by taking the means of receiving that rahmah such as tawbah, such as feeling remorse and so on because Allah Ta'ala says that your Lord has decreed mercy upon himself. Kataba ala nafsihi rahma He decreed mercy for himself and certainly whoever among you does evil out of ignorance and repents immediately thereafter وَأَصْلَحَ and mends himself indeed he Allah is all forgiving and compassionate. So but essentially he's saying you connect devotionally to the name by seeking it by seeking the rahmah of Allah. And you seek the rahmah of Allah by two ways making dua for it making dua for it also by taking the means of rahmah by making tawbah by trying to change your life for the better by feeling remorse over the things you did in the past that you knew you shouldn't have done uh, these are the means of seeking that rahmah from Allah as well he says you also connect with this name ar-rahman by observing the expansiveness of divine mercy and its manifestations in created things for that strengthens hope and causes faith to be actualized. That's a beautiful reminder. He's saying another way you connect to the name Ar-Rahman is by just paying attention to how that name manifests in the world around you. Think about people, animals, things in nature, all the things around us that are receiving some share of Rahmah from Allah. When you witness that, you are seeing the effects of that name. Right? So by seeing that, you're connecting to Allah devotionally through that name Ar-Rahman. Now for takhalluq, remember, and I'm going to repeat these a lot, so I don't want to overwhelm with Arabic terms. The first one is ta'alluq. We said that's to connect devotionally. So think of it as what you do. Takhalluq is how you take the meaning of that name, which is speaking about rahma. And how do you take that and make it into your own character? That's called takhalluq, the conscious adopting of that quality as your own. They say that you should cultivate this name in your character by looking upon all of creation with the eye of mercy. Now, there's an important point that has to be mentioned here. Looking upon people with the eye of mercy doesn't mean you become a hippie. <laughs> it doesn't mean 
that you, you become so soft that you cannot slaughter an animal for Eid. That's not a praiseworthy rahmah. You don't become so merciful that you don't get angry for the sake of Allah when Allah's rights are violated or when people are violating the rights of other people and harming them. You wouldn't say, oh, you know, what's going over there in, in Gaza, you know, what they're doing. Yeah, you know, have mercy on them. You know, give them a break. That's not, that's not the proper place of rahmah. Rahma in that case is actually enforcing standards and stopping evil. Right? So mercy towards others is not just being nice to them. That's not always rahma. Nor is rahma accepting the wrong actions of people and not enforcing standards and accountability. That's not rahma. Right? A child. If a child got to choose what they eat for dinner every single night, what do you think they would choose? Ice cream, cookies, cake, and candy. Are you having rahmah on your child when you let them have that every single night for dinner? It's not rahmah. Because it, it actually harms them down the road. It even harms them now. So that's not rahmah either. So <coughs> there is a rahmah for oppressors. There is a rahmah for people who abuse others. But that rahmah is in stopping them, if you can. Because if they don't stop, they accrue more and more sin, more and more darkness, and they become worse in the long run. If you try to stop them when you can, even with some kind of harshness that's required, that's rahmah. Because by stopping them then, you prevent them, hopefully, from doing more and more in the future, which becomes worse for them than whatever harshness is there in the moment when you try to stop them. Does that, that make sense? So being harsh with people at times is a form of rahmah. But leaving them in error, leaving them to continue doing wrong when you can actually stop it, that's not rahmah because that causes them to go deeper and deeper into error. So we have to understand that rahmah is not just being happy, smiley, nice, and forgiving even to bad people. That's not really rahmah towards them. Rahmah is stopping them, right? So when he says, and this is from the words of Shaykh Ahmad Zarruq, <coughs> you cultivate the name and character by looking upon all of creation with the eye of mercy. That could be, uh, that could be implemented in any number of ways. It could be implemented by not, not being so judgmental. You know, sometimes if a person is tried by a character fault or a sin that we haven't been tested with, it's easy to look down on them and think badly of them. But some of the ulama, they say, in these situations, you should tell yourself, if I was in their shoes, I would probably do worse. I would probably be doing not just what they're doing, but more and worse. And... You're not justifying their faults. You're not justifying their failures. But you realize that humans are humans. We're weak. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. So have that in mind as well. That is looking at people with the eye of Rahmah. Looking at people with the eye of Rahmah is realizing that they have a Lord. And that we are not uh, Arbab. We're not Lords. 
right? This is ta'alli ala Allah, this way of some people, especially some quote-unquote religious people, who look upon people as if they are lords as well, deciding who gets to go to Jannah and who gets to go to hell. We don't get to make those decisions. The wheel is always turning. We don't know how people are going to end up. Some people who are in a really bad state now will become the best of the best in the future as Allah turns their heart. And some people now who look like the best of the best, you don't know what's going to happen to them. As you go through life and you have some experiences, you may know of some people like that. Maybe 20 years ago, they were really pious. And now they're just out there. No deen at all. And then there are people who had no real deen for a long time. But later on, Allah guided them. The wheel's always turning. So we have to look with the eye of rahmah on people and not uh, act as if we are God and determine, oh, you're like this now, you will forever be this way, and you're doomed. And we, we can't do that. The door of mercy is always open, and we hope that we all enter through it, all of us. So that's cultivation. <coughs> now the slide here should say realization. I didn't edit it. Uh, realization of the name. Tahakkuk. In realization, someone asked me last week, what exactly does that mean? It's kind of hard to explain. But tahakkuk is to attain a deep realization or an experiential understanding of the name or a witnessing of the effects of the name in yourself and in creation. Shaykh Ahmad Zarruq, he says, that the realization of the name Ar-Rahman is through you having mercy and natural lenience so that through you Allah shows mercy to your enemies and all who oppose you. You will then become a mercy for servants and a source of refuge for creation following in the footsteps of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And as I've said before, the connection part is the easier one. Then comes the character development part, which is harder. And then you have the third rung here, tahakkuk or realization, which is very, very high. It's a very high standard. So when we go over this, I'm not claiming it for myself by any means, not even the first or second one, to be honest. But this is what the ulama say, where the person becomes the vehicle, as it were, of Allah's rahmah. That is the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Rahma lil alameen. He is, as Shaykh Ahmed bin Mustafa al-Alawi describes him in one qasida, Ayn al-Rahma. He is the essence, the quintessence of mercy, of divine mercy in creation. And that divine mercy sometimes took the form of him fighting enemies. But he was gracious in doing it, and it was for Allah. And that was a kind of rahmah for them as well, because that set standards that checked enemies and prevented further transgression, and it ultimately became the means of them coming into the faith themselves. So that is, in a nutshell, what the tahakkuk is. But this is all for Ar-Rahman. When you come to Ar-Rahim, we have to look at those three things as well. Uh, connection, cultivation, and realization. And they say that connection to the name Ar-Rahim, <coughs> you connect 
by seeking a downpour of physical and spiritual sustenance. Why does he say sustenance? Because the name Rahim is linked to the Imdad, the sustenance. Whereas Rahman is linked to the grace of existence. So you seek a downpour of physical and spiritual Imdad, sustenance. And by preparing for spiritual sustenance through emptying yourself of grime. What is grime? Uh, what's the word for grime in Arabic? I, I think the word he used here is aghyar. Uh, in this case, aghyar. It's you know the things that pull you away from him. Uh, you empty yourself of the things that are distracting you from him and your purpose. And that's how you prepare on your end for receiving that spiritual sustenance from Allah Ta'ala. So it goes back to action, right? Seeking that rahmah from Allah in the physical and in the spiritual sustenance. Also by removing what may block you from receiving that as well. The cultivation part, uh, which is cultivating the name in your character, this, he says, is done by providing relief to the poor and assisting those in need. So you become Rahim. How does Allah Ta'ala describe His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? He says, Bil Mu'minin Raufun Rahim in Ayatul Hirs. And He is towards the believers, Rauf, full of compassion, Rahim, full of mercy. So, Assisting those in need. He says this should be done as a show of gratitude for Allah's blessings. Right? You're not showing them mercy because, oh, you're here on high, you know, and here's this lowly person. I will have mercy on them, this weak person as I'm standing on high. It's not like that. It's out of gratitude for Allah Ta'ala that you show mercy to them. And you're recognizing that whatever mercy you show, it's ultimately from Allah. Allah gave that to you and that ability. So it's His Rahmah. He just made you the vehicle for it. And He says, <coughs> gratitude for Allah's blessings and the favors He has bestowed upon you. And as a means of opening yourself up to the gentle breezes of His generosity. So basically, it's, it, it requires action. You know, acts of mercy. Acts of mercy can be monetary. It could be physical and helping someone with carrying a burdensome load. It could be giving them one of your most valuable assets, which is your time and your attention. It could be giving them uh, understanding their predicament. Right? It could be take many different forms. And lastly, for the tahakkuk, for the name Ar-Rahim, realization. He says, this name will be realized by ensuring that it is a firmly embedded character trait that does not falter or vacillate between extremes. So it goes back to making it a part of your character, but that becoming not a one-time thing or something you do occasionally, but a fixed part of who you are. That is how you recognize experientially the name Ar-Rahim. You become the means of Allah showing mercy to others. So this is what they say. <coughs> but there's more to be said, of course. And just looking at the time here, 
inevitably when we uh, talk about the rahmah of Allah, we will have to answer the question regarding evil. If Allah is ar-Rahman, then why do bad things happen to good people? If Allah is the universally compassionate, why do people go through hardships? Uh, traditionally, as Muslims, we never really had to wrestle with this theologically. This is unique in Christendom, uh, in the latter period, what they call theodicy, the question of evil. How can an all-good, uh, all beneficent God uh, allow bad things to happen? There's very detailed answers for that in our tradition, uh, but we're not addressing theodicy exclusively here. But I wanted to share something with you from Imam al-Ghazali that helps us gain a proper perspective in understanding how Allah, who is Ar-Rahman, still creates things that are perceived as bad or painful or difficult. So he says in his commentary on the 99 names, you might say, what does it mean for him to be merciful? For one who is merciful does not see people afflicted or injured, tormented or sick, without hastening to remove that condition when he can do so. But the Lord, Allah, certainly has the power to meet every affliction and stave off every need and distress, and to eliminate every sickness and to remove every harm, even though he leaves his servants to be tried by disasters and hardships, while the world is overflowing with disease, calamities, and tribulations, yet he is able to remove them all. How do we reconcile that with him being Ar-Rahman? So that's the question. How does Imam al-Ghazali answer this? He answers very beautifully he, by giving us a few different perspectives. And I'm not quoting him here in the slide. This is the summary of what he said. He gives a few different perspectives and he says, number one, Ar-Rahman, the merciful, certainly wants good for the one who receives mercy. Yet there is no evil in existence which does not contain some good within it. And were that evil to be eliminated, that good within it would be nullified. And the final result would be an evil worse than the evil containing the good. Okay? Maybe you're wondering, what does that look like? I'll give you a controversial example. People have different politics on this issue. So I'm not delving into the politics of the issue for and against. I just want to look at it just realistically. One of the big problems we have uh, in America is at the southern border. What kind of problems do we have there? We, we have immigration issues down there, especially now in the past couple of years. But even before that and before that, for a long time, there's been a lot of problems on the border. And, <coughs> you know, people are rightly upset that because of the policies, the, the way they have constructed the border is kind of forced people seeking a better life to seek to cross in using human traffickers, coyotes, to cross through, mostly through Arizona, because that's a freer open area in the desert. 
But because of that funneling process, a lot more people have died. A lot of people have died. Way more now since they've been funneled there than they were when they could have crossed in from California or other parts of the southern border. Now, a person may see that and they want to be compassionate towards these people who the vast majority of them are just looking to get out of a really difficult situation economically, right, or politically even. So maybe in their view, what's the most compassionate answer? Just, just open the whole thing. Just let it be a free-for-all. That would be more compassionate, right? Because those people would not be risking their life. People could go across and they could seek a better life. That would definitely be more merciful to those individuals. Now you see where the politics is coming. But what, ha- what would happen if it was just open and a free-for-all for everyone? After five years, six years, what would actually happen inside of America? It would result in a complete breakdown in all of the structures that we have uh, economically, socially, uh, medical care, ec- you name it. So it's not, like, which is the greater mercy? That's the question, right? Like that, the mercy of preserving something sometimes results in some relative harm. Like you couldn't have one without the other. I'm not saying that corresponds perfectly to what he's citing here, but that's just an example of how, with a mercy, uh, with with an evil, there is a mercy, and sometimes in the name of mercy, it could lead to a harm if a person is not careful. So he says that <coughs> there's no evil in existence. Uh, there's no evil in existence which does not contain some good within it. Right? And were that evil to be eliminated, the good within it would be nullified. And the final result will be an evil worse than the evil containing the good. So if you use the border example, ultimately it will be a, a, wor- a worse fate for everyone involved if it was just a free-for-all. So there has to be some controls, but it has to be changed. The system is broken, obviously. I'm not saying it's ideal. But it can't just be open, and that leads to a greater evil. So that's one example. Uh, the next one, he says the amputation you know, of, a, of a gangrene hand, you know, when the hand gets infected, the amputation of a gangrene hand is an evil. Yet within it lies an ample good which is the health of the body. If one were to forego the amputation of the hand, the body would perish as a result. That's a worse evil. The primary intention which comes first is the consideration of the uh, unadulterated good, which is the health of the body, surviving, being alive. So that's a really easy example to understand. If a person... We don't have to deal with gangrene hands anymore, do we? It's very, very rare. But let's say a person has a really bad tooth infection. If you have a bad tooth infection, you have two choices. You either have to go to the dentist and have, I don't know, you get antibiotics, maybe a root canal, maybe an extraction, one or the other. But who likes to go to the dentist and get the shot and have the tooth yanked out? That's not fun. So maybe you don't want that choice. You could leave it in. 
But what could happen? The infection spreads. It could even be fatal. So the relative evil of having the tooth removed or getting a root canal and all that's associated with it, that is actually a good in comparison to dying from an infection. So the, what, as he says here, the primary intention is considering the unadulterated good, the ultimate good, which is survival, being alive. And that may come through something that is seen as painful or difficult. The amputation, he says, is sought for the sake of health, not in and of itself. That, that's the key point. The bad things that happen, Baina uh, saying, the bad things that happen, the difficulties, the pains, these things are not happening uh, in and of themselves for no wisdom. That's the thing you have to understand. They're not sought after in and of themselves. They are for a greater good that we may or may not recognize. That's the problem. If you, re you recognize the problem if you have an infected tooth. You have to get it out. You'll put up with the pain because you're suffering, and you know that if you get it pulled out, you'll feel better. You'll put up with the shots. You'll put up with the grinding sounds in the dentist's office that are horrible because you know that what lies at the other end of that is freedom from more pain and freedom from infection and ultimately death. So you put up with it. But what happens is we get tested with difficulties and pains and we don't know why. We can't perceive the wisdom behind it and that's what causes unease. If Allah were to lift the veils and we would know why this bad thing is happening, we would put up with it with joy, with patience, because we know that what comes on the other side is far greater. Just like you're in the dentist's office, you put up with it for as long as you have to because you want to get rid of that tooth or get it filled so you can get out of this pain. You'll put up with it because you know. But if you don't know, it's kind of hard. So that's what he's pointing at here. He gives another answer, and this is similar to the ice cream example I gave earlier. He says, a small child's mother may be tender toward him and so keep him from undergoing cupping, hijama. That was what they would do back then. While the wise father makes him do it by force. So this is like, the child is, he, he has a condition. And he has to undergo some medical treatment that's not so comfortable. So let's say the mother is so compassionate towards him, he doesn't, she doesn't want him to feel any discomfort. So she doesn't want him to go get the treatment because she doesn't want him to feel any pain. Right? This is an imaginary example. But the wise father knows, no, he has to experience that pain for the greater good. He says, an ignorant person thinks that the compassionate one is the mother rather than the father. While the intelligent understand that the father's hurting him by cupping reflects the perfection of his mercy and love as well as the completeness of his compassion. Whereas the mother was his enemy in the guise of his friend, since a little suffering, when it is the cause of great joy, is not evil, but good. So it's not a question of why does God allow evil when he is Ar-Rahman. No, he is Ar-Rahman, and sometimes that pain, that is Rahma in itself. We just don't have the big picture. 
because we're limited as created beings. We don't know everything. So, <coughs> what if, okay, you understand this on an intellectual level, but you know, a person may say, well, what if I don't really see any good beyond this evil? I can't perceive what is the benefit of this pain, this trauma, this tribulation. I can't see it. What does Imam al-Ghazali say to that? He says, maybe your mind is limited like the young boy whose father takes him to get medical treatment. Maybe, although we're grown men and women, maybe our intellects are like the intellect of that three-year-old who wants ice cream for dinner every single night. And when he's told no, he gets upset. We don't see the big picture. Maybe you're short-sighted, he says, like a person who doesn't see how punishing crimes, which is an evil for the criminal, brings a common good for the population. So put yourself in the criminal's shoes. He has to get a physical punishment. Is that good or evil for him? For him it's bad, but that, let's say he committed a crime and there needs to be a deterrent and a consequence so that the standard is set in society. You can't do this and get away with it. So that is evil for him relative to him. But it's actually a good for society because it becomes a deterrent for others. So it's all a matter of perspective. If you have a limited perspective as a finite human being, you may not see the wisdom. But if you have the ultimate perspective, well, the only one who has the ultimate perspective is who? Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. So this is, <coughs> I, I want to conclude with uh, a real subtle latifa, a subtle point that was mentioned by Imam al-Sanusi. Now Imam al-Sanusi has a very small commentary on the 99 names. It's very short. But don't let small books deceive you, especially Imam Sanusi's small books. Some of you know it took two years to finish a very small book of his. Uh, Imam Sanusi, he makes a beautiful point that I have not seen any, made anywhere else. So these two names, Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, as we said, are, linked, are mentioned everywhere in the Qur'an, as in the Basmala, except in Surah At-Tawbah. Imam Sanusi says, the fact that these two names are paired in the Basmala gives us a very subtle indication. Just as we pair them verbally, so we say Bismillahi ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We pair them verbally when we recite the Basmala. Just as we pair them verbally, we should also pair them spiritually. Not just with your tongue, but also in your understanding, spiritually. Namely, he says, one should not take any worldly blessing. Now, the worldly blessings are linked to which name? Ar-Rahman, because it's universal. Every creation receives something. He says, you should not take any worldly blessing which here is linked to the name Ar-Rahman, except that you link it to the afterworldly blessings, and those blessings are linked with which name? 
Ar-Rahim, that's the imdad, which is reserved for the believers. You don't take the worldly blessings, except that you link them to the afterworldly blessings in the hereafter, such as iman and righteous actions and what helps you to do them. So what that means, he's basically telling us, don't separate them. You don't separate Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim and the Basmalah. They're together. Likewise, we don't separate the material blessings from the spiritual blessings. We try to use the material blessings for attaining more of the spiritual blessings. Just as the two names are linked in the Basmalah, spiritually speaking, we want to connect the material to the spiritual. Where we use the material blessings for the, as fuel, as means of seeking the spiritual blessings. That's how you pair them together. So there's a lot that can be said here. And this is really just, it's really just scratching the surface. But I, inshallah, I hope this was uh, uh, enlightening to understand the difference between the two names. The why Ar-Rahman is the universally merciful and why we say Ar-Rahim is the specifically merciful. Why we say that uh, Ar-Rahman is the one who gives the blessing of existence. And we say Ar-Rahim is the one who gives the blessing of sustenance, spiritual sustenance, which is restricted to the believers. Wallahu subhanahu wa ta'ala a'la wa a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. So if there's any questions, we can take a couple because there's no iqama. Yes. First, before you ask, does this answer the question from your question two weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. The answer would be yes. And that is because Allah also mentions in the Quran that He is Arhamur Rahimin. And when you translate that, it is it's uh it means the most merciful of the merciful. Allah, he literally mentions it as a superlative, most merciful. For, for uh, Arham Ar-Rahimin, that, that conjunction. Arham Ar-Rahimin, the most merciful of the merciful. As far as the name Ar-Rahman or Ar-Rahim is concerned, then uh, linguistically they're not superlative nouns. Superlative meaning, so anything superlative in Arabic is going to be uh, Af'al. It will sound like af'al. So when you go into salat, what do you say? Allahu akbar, the greatest, right? So arham is the most merciful. So that would be the superlative meaning. Uh, but the name itself, ar-Rahman, it's not on the form of a superlative noun. And although we say it's, it means the one who is universally compassionate, 
And no one is universally compassionate but him. So in that sense, yes, he is the most merciful. What's that? Superlative. Akbar, Arham, Asghar, Af'al. It's on that wasn't. Hmm? Well, yeah, Arham, uh, that's a good question. When Allah says Arham al Rahimin, the most merciful of the merciful, it's from the root of Rahma. So it doesn't mean the most Rahman of others who are Rahman, it literally means the most uh, Rahma of those who have rahma and those who have rahma have rahma the rahma is the stout so even that is allah's rahma yeah the ruling or like warning is like somebody you know like most people a lot of people's name is abdul rahman or abdul rahman what's the like how do you see the people calling them like their the name you know like nasr or you know rahman so if, if for most of these names, if you don't include the definite article, the Arif and Lam, for most of them it's fine. For most of them it's fine. But there are some of these names which are so exclusive to Allah that even if you don't have the definite article, Al, you don't use them. Like Rahman, right? Uh, of course, Allah, uh, Rahman. But other names like Nasr is fine, right? Or Khaliq, that's also exclusive. Um, so you have a few names like that which are exclusive. Uh, but for the majority, you know, Fulan, his name is Rafir, right? It's fine. If his name is Ali, right? One of Allah's names is Al Ali. Does that mean you can't call someone Ali? Of course not, right? Because if you remove the Alif and Lam, it's not a divine name. It's just a quality of that person of being uh, exalted and lofty of status. Yeah. And there's some, there's some people whose names is actually Abdurrahman, but out of their own ignorance, they drop the Abd, and people just call them Rahman, which shouldn't be done. Right? If someone goes around saying, my name is Rahman, no, it's not. It's Abdurrahman. I don't, care, I don't care what people call you. You're Abdul Rahman. Mm. Yeah. <coughs> it's uh they should they should be more careful. Yeah, it's just, it's just ignorance. You know, people don't, they don't re realize what's going on. So they should just learn and, and amend that, inshallah. Any other questions? Sifa uh, Mubalagha. Yeah. So that's a term in, in Arabic, which it's a, a descriptive name 
but it, the description is one of intensity, right? Um, let me think of an example for it. Hmm? Yeah, so, right. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of something uh, even simpler than that. Um, good. Yes, that's a good one. Alim is your standard subject noun for someone who knows. Alim. Fa'il. Alim is fa'il. It's that sifa mubalagha, which... It, there's an there's a intense intensity there. So the divine name, Al-Alim, we would actually translate that as the uh, all-knowing or the one with absolute knowledge. So there's an intensity there that's not found in the regular noun, Alim. So that's what the Sifa Mubalagha indicates, uh, some intensity, yeah. As a fixed quality, not a not a temporary state. Yeah. Yeah. So Al Aziz was a title. That was not that was not his actual name. It it was a title, and <coughs> this is fine as a title. Yeah, it's not. So I, as we said, not every single name. Um, are we prohibited from using in that fashion? So the name of the name Al Aziz, it's actually a title for this person who had a position of authority. Uh, I believe it was a treasurer or something, and it just means the the, the mighty one, you know, or the the one of power. Yeah, and he, he became the Aziz. Yeah. Any other questions? No. Allah Ta'ala mentions the verb for, for risk, uh, linking it, ascribing it to people. Farzuquhum, right? You, know, you could say, I'm, I'm raziq, right? So it's fine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, think of it like that. Uh, it is the highest level, so it would correspond to the degree of ihsan, that, that third level of the deen. And And that was actually the answer I gave uh, the sister last week who asked about tahaqquq. I said, think about it in light of the hadith about ihsan, where the Prophet ﷺ says, it is that you worship Allah as though you see him, and though you do not see him, you know he sees you. So the first part of that, tara, that will be the tahakkuk. Yeah. That's one way of explaining it. Uh, the, 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 it's, the, the word escapes me for the moment. Um, no, for fa'alan, the the term that designates that meaning. Um, yani, yani malu al 
Yeah, you know, something is filled. I could look it back up. The, the actual descriptive eludes me at the moment, but that's the meaning. Yes. <coughs> I debated about whether to discuss those matters. And now that you ask it, I think I'll use that as my my in. So maybe when we come back, we'll address that as a general topic, what that even means and how it's derived, and some important uh, guidelines and caveats about how that's done. And then we can look at some of the specifics, inshallah. I want to give that some attention and not just say, oh, read it this many times for this or that benefit. That definitely has a place, but it, you have to be very careful with that because it is a kind of spiritual medicine. Some of the names are very intense, and they have very intense effects. Some of the names are very soft-acting medicines of, on the heart that you can do dhikr of endlessly, right? Others, not so much, right? If you go and say, uh, ya qahar, ya qahar, you know, thousands of times, the effect is very powerful. Whereas if you say, uh, ya latif, millions of times, you'll be absolutely fine. Yeah. So inshallah, I'll talk about that when we come back. Inshallah. Wa sallallahu wa sallam 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 wa sall